Have you ever considered the idea that you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with? There's a danger of saying that beginning because I may lose you for the rest of the entire sermon. You'll be thinking, do I need to choose better friends? Maybe, that, maybe that's true. But it's actually, it is a pretty freaky thought. But the more you think about it, I, I really think it seems to be true that the people we spend the most time with, of course, greatly affect our way of thinking, our values, our habits, our desires, our vision, our hopes, things you're into and things you're exposed to, negative or positively. Whom you spend the most time with influences you and I on an ongoing basis. Now, whether you've ever explicitly thought about that five-person average idea or not, you actually instinctively know the truth of it because this is why we naturally care, if you have children, about who your children spend time with. Not being snooty or not wanting to have a non-ministry mindset or something, but the fact is we all know that we want our children to have a good group of friends. Why? Because that will influence them. Or to bring it even more home, where's the main place where we as children, we were all children at some point, learned either harshness or gentleness, hard work or laziness, swearing or not, fit, fits of rage, stick to in relationships? Where did we learn that? Well, we mostly learned it in the home. Yes, genetics play a big factor, but so does environment. In fact, I noticed just again, just the other day, one of my kids being very impatient with a sibling of his and with a certain tone of voice. And I had two quick feelings. One was unhappiness that this was happening and then a sad realization that he had gotten that, including the exact intonation from me. <laughs> but no matter what way age we are, I think we can recognize there's a lot of truth to that average of the five people we spend the most time with rule. Now, here's the question. Why is that so? What is it about us that makes that so? Well, the reason is, I would suggest to you, is because of the deep-seated and powerful reality that God has put in us that we can describe as the power of imitation. We all learn how to be in the world, either good or bad, through imitating those around us. Not just children, that's especially obvious in them, but adults as well. It's a deeply potent factor in our ongoing formation as people. That's why we really probably are often the average of the five people we spend the most time with. Now, here's then a follow-up question that you may or may not have ever considered, but is intimately related to that last one I just asked. Why does the Bible have so many stories about people rather than just being a bunch of doctrinal instructions about who, get, who God is and what we're supposed to do? Why is it that actually most of the Bible is not about God? It's actually stories about God working in real people's lives. Most of the Bible is that. Why? Well, the answer is, I'd suggest to you, it's the same. It's the power of imitation. Because God has made us in such a way that we learn to be in the world, we grow to be one way or another, positive or negative, life-giving or not, through seeing how others live. Both real people we know and people in stories, even if they're not real, even if they're aliens or beavers or hobbits or Lego minifigs, we still learn how to be in the world through the power of those stories. And that's important to understand, I think, as we turn to the book of Acts. 
We've been going through, preaching through the book of Acts. And one of the striking things about it is that while God is clearly at work in all the stories and behind them, it is a whole book that's a story about people doing things, people doing good things and bad things. And I'm gonna suggest to you that this is given to us as roles and models of exactly what I'm talking about, of imitation. And today, if you do have a Bible, you can turn to Acts 18 is where we're gonna be. We'll put the verses on the screen too if you don't, which is totally fine. But today, in our little story, just a little story from Acts chapter 18, I believe God has given us these stories because they're very relevant and personal to you and me today through the power of imitation. We're gonna meet some characters. We're gonna meet um, a, a husband and wife couple named Aquila and Priscilla and another guy named Apollos who are really pretty minor characters, but I think God has something for us today. So I just wanna pause once more before we turn to Acts 18 and just pray for God to help us understand. So let's pray. Our kind Father, we thank you uh, that no matter what we come with today, apathy, distraction, joy, need, hunger, thirst, um, sadness, blindness, depression, laughter, whatever we come with, God, we thank you that you know us more deeply than we even know ourselves and you welcome us with joy today. Please, God, fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we can understand you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Again, if you have a Bible, I wanna look at Acts 18, that's great. But let me read for you our story. We're gonna pick it up in verse 24. It says, meanwhile, there was a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria who came to Ephesus. And he was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and they explained to him the way of God more adequately. And then when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. And when he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. That's a very short story. And of course, it's, part of this bigger story of Acts that we've been walking through. In this story, again, we meet these characters who, as I already said, are very minor characters. The big dudes in the book of Acts are, of course, Peter and Paul. Nonetheless, these minor characters are very important and real people. And most of what happens in this story, there was a reference to Ikea, but most of what happens is in the harbor city of Ephesus, which you can still go to today, the ruins of it. It's on the far western end of modern-day Turkey. And it was a very important city in the Roman Empire and eventually for Christians too. But we know from the book of Acts that Paul had lived there for a while. He'd ministered there. He'd planted some churches. We have a letter in our New Testaments that's called Ephesians that was written back to that church from Paul when he was in Corinth, actually, written back to Ephesus and the churches in that area. And we also know later that it's where the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, ended up living his last years of his life and ministered there as well. So it's a really important city uh, in the Bible. 
Well, at the time of our story in Acts 18, there were a number of thriving house churches there, several of them that seem to have been probably converted synagogues, because as we've seen through Acts, when Paul goes, he goes into the synagogue first, and a lot of times they believed. And so those synagogues became Christian synagogues or Christian churches. And then we get to our story where we meet our first character, this man with the awesome name Apollos, right? That's a great name. And Luke tells us several things about him. He was a Jew, you can see it there in the text. He was a native of Alexandria, which may not mean much to us, but that was probably the most important intellectual city in the ancient, in the ancient Mediterranean. It'd be like Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard and Yale all put together in one city. They had this famous library, they had these famous schools. Um, it's where the Jewish philosopher Philo lived. It's where the Greek version of the Old Testament was translated, what we call the Septuagint. It's a very, very important city. And it became, in the couple of centuries after this, the most important city for Christians intellectually as well. It's where like Cyril and Clement came from and Origen and many commentaries were produced. Around this time, there were probably about 100,000 Jews living in Alexandria. So, the, so Apollos is not odd there. He's a Jew from this city. And what that means is, and we see it in the text as well, he was very learned. He was very eloquent. He had a formal education, probably Jewish and Greek. He was very cultured. He had rhetorical training, which means he was a very gifted speaker and very good at interpreting texts, which is what Alexandria was known for. And we saw from what the description Luke gives us that he was in fact well-versed not only in Greek knowledge, but in the Jewish scriptures. And you always have to remember that whenever you see scriptures, when you're reading the New Testament, that always means what we would call the Old Testament because the New Testament didn't exist when the New Testament is being written. So it says he was very well-known, very well-versed in the scriptures. That's talking about books like Isaiah and Genesis and Deuteronomy and others. And we also learn from Luke that he was instructed in the way of the Lord and was very fervent about it. And that all sounds great. Okay, great. Here's just another faithful preacher or pastor. But actually the story of Apollos is a real dilemma and it's a real puzzle. And we can see the puzzle in verses 25 and 26. Let me read them again. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. But look at that last phrase. He only knew the baptism of John. And so then when he goes to speak boldly in the synagogue, when Priscilla and Aquila, who we haven't met yet, but they were good friends of Paul, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they had to explain to him the way of God more adequately or accurately or precisely. You see, so all those descriptions of Apollo seem really positive until you start paying attention to those two verses and you realize there's something amiss here. Even though he's fervent and he understands the Jewish scriptures, he doesn't know the whole story. And scholars actually debate about what's going on here, but here's my take on it. As a highly educated and faithful Jew, Apollos, like many other Jews in that day, was hoping for and waiting for God to send the Messiah to come and establish his reign upon the earth. We can find that in a lot of places in, in scripture, but especially probably the book of Isaiah would be the kind of text that a lot of these faithful Jews were reading and hoping in. In fact, one of the ways that Isaiah describes this gospel of God returning is the way of the Lord the very phrase that Luke uses to describe Apollos. So Apollos is like other people we meet. If you remember back to the Christmas stories that we looked at, if you were here, or maybe you just know them from the beginning of Luke's gospel, we met a couple of people there, Simeon and Anna. They'd be very similar. They were faithful Jews who were looking forward to God coming to return and hoping in that. We also learn about Apollos that he knew about the baptism of John. And what is that referring to? Well, think back to the gospels as well. 
The baptism of John is the John the Baptist, we call him, the last great prophet who preached the way of the Lord and is described as that and pointed to Jesus as the coming Messiah. So here's what I think happened with Apollos. He was a faithful Jew who was looking for the Messiah. He'd probably been baptized by John on a trip to Judea himself, or maybe a disciple of John had made it to Alexandria. He may have even heard of Jesus, but he didn't know the whole story. He didn't know exactly what had happened with Jesus. He couldn't just Google it and find out, right? There was no way. It was only if somebody came and told you what had happened in a faraway land. So he was faithful and he was true and he was probably preaching from Isaiah and texts like that when he stood up in the synagogue and it was all true. It just wasn't the whole story about who Jesus was. In fact, if you read just a little bit farther, <clears throat> excuse me, into Acts 19, Paul is gonna come back to Ephesus from Corinth and he's gonna meet a bunch of people just like Apollos who had received the baptism of John, but they hadn't yet fully understood the gospel and so they needed to be baptized and then were filled with the Spirit. I'm suggesting to you that's exactly what was going on with Apollos as well. And so even though he's got limited understanding, he's speaking truly and boldly, he just doesn't understand the whole thing. And so in the providence of kindness of God, Priscilla and Aquila, whom we'll meet here in a, in a moment more, take him aside and instruct him more fully. And the result was amazing. Did you see it in verses 27 and 28? God used Apollos greatly. He became even a more powerful minister of the gospel. And then he desired to go to Corinth himself, another very famous city that, where they really valued the kind of skills he had. So he went there and began preaching as well. We know later, and in fact, <clears throat> in Paul's letter that we call 1 Corinthians, he mentions Apollos and he mentions how powerfully effective Apollos had been and calls him a fellow worker in God's field. And he says this amazing phrase, Paul does, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it to grow. So obviously God used Apollos greatly such that even Paul recognized this. And in fact, Martin Luther, many years later, was one of the first people to suggest that maybe Apollos was actually even the author of the book of Hebrews because the book of Hebrews in our New Testament is such a sophisticated Alexandrian type of sort of reading of the Jewish scriptures. We don't know for sure, but God used him. So that's a pretty cool short story about Apollos. But I said before that the point of these stories is not just so that we can go, oh, I know more about the Bible now. It's not so that I can say, oh, cool, thanks, I've got more historical information. We would be missing it if we didn't ask, what is God wanting to say to us through this story about Apollos? What is there that we might imitate given by God? Well, one thing I think is the virtue that he shows of humility and teachability. <clears throat> we'll talk more about Priscilla Aquila in just a moment and the role, their role in his life. But let me just point out for you that when they come to correct him, he, who is obviously very intelligent, very educated, very gifted, very successful, they're tent makers, literally, we'll get to that, but he is a highly educated person. He doesn't justify himself or defend himself or take offense that someone would dare question his great knowledge. Instead, he receives it. And I suggest to you, and the result is, of course, a greater knowledge that he gains and a greater usefulness. That, friends, is the sign of a true learner and a true leader. The humility and the teachability that should never leave any of us, even once we've arrived, 
Maybe you're the CEO, maybe you are a pastor, maybe you are a professor or a surgeon or a politician. Maybe you've arrived at the highest point. Teachability and humility should continue to be the mark of all of our lives, even as, it, as they were for Apollos. I'll have to let you think about your own space and is there, is there someone or some situation in which maybe you need to be more open to the instruction of others, even if you might be in the position of authority or power. But I think the biggest thing God wants us to learn from our brother Apollos is how he models the power and the importance of knowledge about God. And specifically, I mean knowledge about who God is, what we might call theology. Did you notice that little phrase at the end of verse 27? It says that after Apollos had become fully instructed, he was a great help <clears throat> to those who by grace had believed. He was a great help to those who by grace had believed. I love that. That is a beautiful and instructive sentence. People like you and me, if you're a Christian, it is by grace that we have come to believe and become followers of Jesus. But then we are helped, we are encouraged, we are strengthened, we are built up by knowledge, by people like Apollos who help us understand who God is deeply and teach others. The fact is, you see, knowledge or understanding of theology and the deeper things of God that's not just for pastors and professors and theologians. That's how everyone grows in their faith. That's how everyone grows in encouragement in the life of faith through understanding more. You see, you and I are always becoming something. Our bodies and our souls and our minds are always growing in some developing way. And just like Maybe you're on the paleo diet or whatever it is. I'm eating mostly all fruits and nuts and cheese right now and lots of beef jerky. It's not a bad life. And I feel a lot better. Not here to evangelize you about that. But as I eat, I become a different person as I eat differently, right? And you know that is, is true as well. Even cellularly, it happens in our bodies. Well, I'd suggesting to you and asking you, what's going to be the food that strengthens the life of faith, not just our physical bodies? What strengthens the life of faith? It's understanding who God is for us in Christ. Understanding truths from the gospels like that through Jesus, you and I are now beloved sons and daughters. That even though few of us maybe got the real blessing from our parents that we desperately want and need, it's true that God now looks upon us and pronounces blessing and welcomes us that you and I are safe and secure and beloved, that you and I have been given, if you're a Christian, the power actually by God's own spirit residing in us in some mysterious way to be transformed, to become fully and beautifully more human, that we have the promise and experience of becoming more human through Jesus's power residing in us and that he's given us a reason for living, especially as you get a little older, you begin to wonder, what, why am I doing all the things I'm doing? I'd suggest to you that the beautiful knowledge of the gospel gives us an actual understanding of how the world is and invites us into something to give our lives to that is worth it. Christ, friends, is the lover who you long for, the warrior you need, the king you want to honor, 
the redeemer who never shames or condemns you, the deliverer who raises you up out of the muck and stuck you're in, the life changer who gives you life and translates you from life to death. These things and many more are knowledge about God that can only encourage us as we come to understand them. This is the power of understanding, encouraging our faith. Hear, hear me clearly. I'm not talking about being more intelligent necessarily or necessarily getting more formal education. Growing in knowledge does not mean you should all go to seminary, although maybe some of you should. In fact, second career people are my favorite kinds of students. Sorry, regular seminary students, but the best kind of seminary students are second career people. Maybe God, uh, I, have a, I just in the class last week, I had a retired lawyer and I said, these two, two actually, and those are great students. Maybe God's calling you to seminary. I don't know. But my point is not that you have to get more formal education, nor am I guilting you into having a quiet time now every day necessarily, or you're already having a quiet time. Well, you need to double it, buddy. That's not, I'm not trying to do that because more knowledge, you see, won't actually fix anything. The Pharisees had plenty of knowledge. Rather, I'm inviting you into the great gift that God wants to give you, encouragement, hope, courage, faith, through reading Holy Scripture, listening to sermons, going to equip classes, going to Bible studies, being in a community group, these things that actually will build up your faith, they are the food that will strengthen your faith. Paul, when he's back in Corinth, or actually later in his life, he writes a letter to Ephesus, this place we're talking about, and he says this in chapter four. You can see the words there. Paul says, God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. He's thinking of people like Apollos and himself, probably, Priscilla and Aquila, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, <clears throat> to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, influenced by random things, but instead, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Instead, it is through the true knowledge that we grow up into fullness of humanity, is what this is saying. So might I simply just invite you into this kind of work to grow into understanding. To Some of you might be called to become like Apollos, to actually be teachers, but all of us are called to be learners and ones who grow in knowledge that we might be strengthened. But Apollos isn't the only person we meet in our story. Much more briefly, let's say something about Aquila and Priscilla. Let me read for you just part of our short story again. Verse 24, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. He spoke with great fervor, taught about Jesus accurately, though he only knew the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him into their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Who are Priscilla or Prisca would be the official name. Priscilla is like a diminutive of it. Who were Priscilla and Aquila? Well, we actually meet them earlier in this same chapter, in chapter 18 of Acts. And Aquila and his wife were faithful Jews who lived in Rome, but they had been expelled for being Jewish because there was a persecution. They lived now in Corinth. So they were really refugees, which is a very unsettling thing to do. They were on the move, looking for a place to live. <clears throat> 
And God in his providence had plans for them because as refugees, they met this guy named Paul and were converted through him. And it was more than a formal relationship. They apparently became very dear friends and companions with Paul and even went into business together. And if you've you've heard the term in missions, tent makers, meaning where you use your job to go move somewhere else, that's because it comes from these people. They were literally tent makers. They were not metaphorically tent makers. They made tents. That's what they did. They sewed canvas. This is what they did. And they were in business with Paul and were discipled by him. And as time goes by, they travel with Paul to various cities. They learn from him. They're engaged in people's lives. And that's where their story intersects with Apollos. Because they're in Ephesus, living and working, making tents, sewing canvas, sharing the gospel, and Apollos arrives. Paul had left them there, probably to kind of be in charge of the churches there and help. That's when Apollos arrives, and we know what happens. It's Priscilla and Aquila whom God uses to change Apollos' life. And this leads to the same question I ask about Apollos. What does God want us to learn from this, these minor characters who have a huge impact? What is it that we can imitate? Well, I think there are several things, but let me just mention two. First, notice the humility and love of Priscilla and Aquila. When this punk outsider, Apollos, shows up at their church, super intelligent, way more eloquent and educated than they are, more powerful, but he's deficient in their understanding. What do they do? Think of what they could have done, how they could have bad-mouthed him, snubbed him, opposed him, shamed him in public, right? After all, they're personal friends with the apostinking Paul, Apostle Paul, right? They're personal friends with Paul, right? They could have felt jealous, they could have felt snooty. They, should have felt, they could have felt competitive and superior. And this young whippersnapper Egyptian thinks he's a better preacher than us and everyone thinks he's so great. But that's not how they show up. What do they do instead? They saw the beauty of who Apollos could be. And so notice what it said in verse 26, they invite him into their home and explain things more accurately to him in private. Careful not to shame him. They could have stood up in the synagogue and said, no, you don't understand. They invite him into their home. They minister to him, not shaming him, not disputing with him, not isolating him. Everything indicates that they were very winsome, loving, patient people. And where did they learn to do that? They were imitating Paul, and where did Paul learn to do it? He was imitating Jesus, exactly what Paul tells us in other places. And so they love on him. They don't see Apollos as a threat or a nuisance, not focusing on his deficiencies or his liabilities, but on him as a gift, someone to invest in. It's so beautiful. And consider the impact of the choice that they make. Because they loved on Apollos and invested him, God used him to greatly impact probably more people than he even used Aquila and Priscilla to. That's the power and wonder of disciples making disciples making disciples, of channeling and minting love from one person to another that always multiplies. And second, related to that very closely, notice that Priscilla and Aquila show us that you don't have to be a seminary student or a pastor or an intellectual leader 
to invest in other people's lives. Again, they are literally canvas sewers, tradespeople, salespeople, manufacturers, but they give themselves both to studying and knowledge of who God is and then to lovingly investing that into other people. Listen again to those words from Paul of the Ephesians. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body. The Christian church is not about, you've got these leaders who do everything and everybody else just says, awesome. The point of leaders is that everyone, people like Aquila and Priscilla can then go and be ministers of the gospel. Is there anything more beautiful than that? And today you may feel very inadequate and feel like, I don't know, I have enough knowledge to help anybody. Friends, that's not true. You have the most important thing if you're a Christian filled with the spirit, love. Love that you can pour imperfectly into other people and have a huge impact. On September 20th of 1988, there's an uneducated jock, a former college football player named Craig Seaforth, who rather than, he was, he's real tall, real handsome guy, rather than pursuing a money-making career after college, he chose to serve humbly raising support for a living with Campus Crusade for Christ and to sit down with a skinny, terribly unlike him, lost and confused teenager and share the gospel with me. And not only to share the basic message of the gospel, but to invest his life deeply in me, spending all kinds of time with me over the next several years, putting up with my very annoying habits and questions, telling me I need to brush my teeth more often, being patient with me when I was ignorant and arrogant, when I did really, really stupid stuff as a young Christian, I won't even get into it, when I was way too big for my britches, he channeled grace into me almost 30 years ago from his brokenness and his lack of education. And a big part of the reason he was able to do that, friends, is because when he was in college, there was a guy named Fred. I don't even know Fred's last name, who shared the gospel with Craig and poured his life into Craig. And there was somebody before Fred who did that for Fred. And there was somebody before that person, all the way back in this beautiful, twisted, complicated, silver chain that only God can see all the way back to Apollos and Aquila and Priscilla. People investing love in each other and pointing to Christ through the knowledge of God in the scriptures. What about you? Can I encourage you to step towards that relationship, step towards that person your own children, certainly, maybe your parents, your friends, but also maybe to identify some people that need you, and maybe especially if they're annoying and you think, never that guy. I mean, I had hair down the middle of my back and I smoked pot every day. And this jock football player God used. Don't think that you know what God's gonna do. Step towards that relationship, step towards that person, and even out of your inadequacy, channel love and grace to them. And who knows what God might do. So let me invite you that some of those five people that you should be spending time with that will become your average person should be some of these biblical characters. People like Priscilla and Aquila 
and Paulos and Paul. Gifts of God to us, because the ethics, the morality of the Bible is ultimately one of imitation. Do you know what the word godly means? The word godly means godlike. It's just a short form of godlike. At the root of what God is calling us to is to be as he is, not in our own power, but by the gift of grace to then become more like him, which is not because he's a big mean Santa Claus who's watching us and we better watch out, but because God alone has life and light and joy and freedom. And he wants us as his creatures to enter into that. So the only way we can enter into life and light and joy and freedom is to be more like him. That's not legalism, that's an invitation to find the life that you long for. And often we find it through seeing how God has worked in other people. So as we close today, we're actually gonna partake in an imitation of sorts of what happened the last night Jesus was with his disciples. We're imitating, we're re-imitating that event as a reminder to us that Jesus took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body there with his friends. And in the sadness of that dark night, offering himself to them so that they might offer to others themselves. And he took a cup of wine and they shared it among themselves. And he said, this is the, my blood in a new covenant that I'm making with the world through you. So drink it, all of you. And today here as we close at Sojourn, we want to re-imitate this practice. If you're a Christian, come because you're proclaiming and you're renewing your faith. If you're not a Christian, please don't partake in this. Just stay where you are. It's no problem at all. And there's no shame or anything because that would be, some, that would be doing something that, you don't, that you're not a part of yet. <laughs> we want you to be a part of it, right? But we also wanna be clear To be a Christian is to be one who puts their faith and trust in Jesus to become more like God by his grace. And that's what this table is for. So I'm gonna pray. Musicians are gonna come forward. As you desire, come forward and partake of that bread, dip it in the wine, and remember that we are partaking in this silver thread going all the way back to Jesus' own disciples. Let's pray.